Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. First half of Chapter 27, Empathy. It wasn't every day you got to see Harry Potter beg. Please! whined Harry Potter. Fred and George shook their heads again, smiling. There was an agonized look on Harry Potter's face. But I told you how I did the one with Kevin Entwistle's cat, and Hermione and the vanishing soda, and I can't tell you about the sorting hat, or the remember-all, or Professor Snape! Fred and George shrugged and turned to leave. If you ever do figure it out, said the Weasley twins, be sure to let us know. You're evil! You're both evil! Fred and George firmly closed the door to the empty classroom behind them and made sure to keep the grin on their faces for a while just in case Harry Potter could see through doors. Then they turned a corner and their faces sagged. I don't suppose Harry's guesses gave you any ideas? They said to each other at the same time and then their shoulders slumped further. Their last relevant memory was a flume refusing to help them though they couldn't remember what they'd asked him to do. But they must have looked elsewhere and found someone to help them to do something illegal, or they wouldn't have agreed to be obliviated afterward. How had they possibly been able to get all that done on just 40 galleons? At first they'd worried that they'd forged evidence so good that Harry actually would end up married to Ginny. But they'd thought of that too, it seemed. The Wizengamot proceedings had been tampered with again to put them back the way they'd been originally. The fake betrothal contract had vanished from its dragon-guarded vault in Gringotts, and so on. It was pretty scary, actually. Most people now thought the Daily Prophet had just made the whole thing up for unguessable reasons, and the Quibbler had helpfully twisted the knife deeper with the next day's headline, Harry Potter secretly betrothed to Luna Lovegood! Whoever they'd hired would tell them after the statute of limitations expired, they desperately hoped. But meanwhile, it was awful. They'd pulled their greatest prank ever, maybe the greatest prank in the history of pranking, and they couldn't remember how. It was crazy. They'd been able to think of a way the first time. Why couldn't they see it now after knowing everything they'd done? Their only consolation was that Harry didn't know they didn't know. Not even Mum had questioned them about it, despite the obvious Weasley connection. Whatever had been done, it was far out of reach of any Hogwarts student. Except possibly one who, if certain rumors were true, might have done it by snapping his fingers. Harry had been questioned under Veritas serum, he told them with Dumbledore present and giving the Aurors scary looks. The Aurors had asked just enough to determine that Harry hadn't pulled the prank himself or disappeared anyone and then gotten the heck out of Hogwarts. Fred and George had wondered whether to feel insulted about Harry Potter being questioned by the Aurors for their prank, but the look on Harry's face, probably for exactly the same reason, made everything worth it. Unsurprisingly, Rita Skeeter and the editor of the Daily Prophet had both vanished and were probably in another country by now. They would have liked to be able to tell their family about that part. Dad would have congratulated them, they thought, after Mum had finished killing them and Ginny had burned the remains. But everything was still alright, they'd tell Dad someday. And meanwhile... Meanwhile, Dumbledore had happened to sneeze while passing them in the hallway, and a small package had accidentally dropped out of his pockets, and inside had been two matched Wardbreaker monocles of incredible quality. The Weasley twins had tested their new monocles on the forbidden third room corridor, making a quick trip to the magic mirror and back, and they hadn't been able to see all the detection webs clearly, but the monocles had shown a lot more than they'd seen the first time. 
Of course, they would have to be very careful never to get caught with the monocles in their possession, or they would end up in the headmaster's office getting a stern lecture and maybe even threats of expulsion. It was good to know that not everyone who got sorted into Gryffindor grew up to be Professor McGonagall. Harry was in a white room, windowless, featureless, sitting before a desk, facing an expressionless man in formal robes of solid black. The room was screened against detection, and the man had performed exactly 27 spells before saying so much as, Hello, Mr. Potter. It was oddly appropriate that the man in black was about to try reading Harry's mind. Prepare yourself, said the man tonelessly. A human mind, Harry's occlumency book had said, was only exposed to a legilimens along certain surfaces. If you failed to defend your surfaces, the legilimens would go through and be able to access any part of you which their own mind was able to comprehend. Which tended not to be much. Human minds, it seemed, were hard for humans to understand on any level but the shallowest. Harry had wondered if knowing lots of cognitive science could make him an incredibly powerful legilimens, but repeated experience had finally driven into him the lesson that he needed to get a little less excited in his anticipations about this sort of thing. It wasn't as if any cognitive scientist understood humans well enough to make one. To learn the counter, occlumency, the first step was to imagine yourself to be a different person, pretending it as thoroughly as you could, immersing yourself entirely in that alternate persona. You wouldn't always have to do that, but in the beginning, it was how you learned where your surfaces were. The legilimens would try to read you, and you would feel it happening if you paid close enough attention. You would sense them trying to enter. And your job was to make sure that they always touched your imaginary persona and not the real one. When you were good enough at that, you could imagine being a very simple sort of person. Pretend to be a rock, and make a habit of leaving the pretense in place where all your surfaces were. That was a standard occlumency barrier. Pretending to be a rock was hard to learn, but easy to do afterward, and the exposed surface of a mind was much shallower than its interior, so with enough practice, you could keep it up as a background habit. Or if you were a perfect Occlumens, you could race ahead of any probes, answering queries as fast as they were asked, so that the Legilimens would enter through your surfaces and see a mind indistinguishable from whoever you were pretending to be. Even the best Legilimens could be fooled that way. If a perfect Occlumens claimed they were dropping their Occlumency barriers, there was no way to know if they were lying. Worse, you might not know you were dealing with a perfect Occlumens. They were rare, but the fact that they existed meant you couldn't trust legitimacy on anyone. It was a sad commentary on how little human beings understood each other, how little any wizard comprehended the depths lying beneath the mind's surface, that you could fool the best human telepaths by pretending to be someone else. But then, human beings only understood each other in the first place by pretending. You didn't make predictions about people by modeling the hundred trillion synapses in their brain as separate objects. Ask the best social manipulator on Earth to build you an artificial intelligence from scratch, and they just give you a dumb look. You predicted people by telling your brain to act like theirs. You put yourself in their place. If you wanted to know what an angry person would do, you activated your own brain's anger circuitry. And whatever that circuitry output, that was your prediction. What did the neural circuitry for anger actually look like inside? Who knew? The best social manipulator on Earth might not know what neurons were, and neither might the best legilimens. Anything a legilimens could understand, an occlumens could pretend to be. It was the same trick either way, probably implemented by the same neural circuitry in both cases, a single set of control circuits for reconfiguring your own brain to act as a model of someone else's. 
And so, the race between telepathic offense and telepathic defense had been a decisive win for defense. Otherwise, the entire magical world, maybe even the whole Earth, would have been a very different place. Harry took a deep breath and concentrated. There was a slight smile on his face. For once, just once, Harry hadn't gotten shortchanged in the mysterious powers department. After almost a month of work, and more on a whim than any real hunch, Harry had decided to make himself coldly angry and then try the book's occlumency exercises again. At that point, he'd mostly given up hope on that sort of thing, but it had still seemed worth a quick try. He'd run through all the book's hardest exercises in two hours, and the next day he'd gone and told Professor Quirrell he was ready. His dark side, it turned out, was very, very good at pretending to be other people. Harry thought of his standard trigger from the first time he'd gone over entirely to his dark side. Severus paused, looking quite pleased with himself. And that will be five points. No, let us make it an even ten points from Ravenclaw for back chat. Harry's smile grew chillier, and he regarded the black-robed man who thought he was going to read Harry's mind. And then Harry turned into someone else entirely, someone who had seemed appropriate to the occasion. In a white room, windowless, featureless, sitting before a desk, facing an expressionless man in formal robes of solid black. Kimball Kinnison regarded the black-robed man who thought he was going to read the mind of a second-stage lensman of the Galactic Patrol. To say that Kimball Kinnison was confident of the outcome would be an understatement. He had been trained by Mentor of Arisia, the most powerful mind known to this or any other universe, and the mere wizard sitting across from him would see precisely what the Grey Lensman wanted him to see. The mind of the boy he was currently disguised as, an innocent child named Harry Potter. I'm ready, said Kimball Kinnison in nervous tones that were exactly appropriate for an 11-year-old boy. Legitimins, said the black-robed wizard. There was a pause. The black-robed wizard blinked as if he'd seen something so shocking that it had been enough to make even his eyelids move. His voice wasn't quite toneless as he said, The boy who lived has a mysterious dark side? The heat slowly crept up into Harry's cheeks. Well. His face had now settled back into perfect calm. Excuse me, Mr. Potter. It is good to know your advantages, but that is not the same as being wildly overconfident in them. You may indeed be able to learn occlumency at eleven years of age. This astounds me. I had thought Mr. Dumbledore was pretending to be insane again. Your dissociative talent is so strong that I am surprised to find no other signs of childhood abuse, and you may become a perfect occlumens in time. But there is a considerable difference between that and expecting to put up a successful occlumency barrier on your first attempt. That is merely ridiculous. Did you feel anything as I read your mind? Harry shook his head, now blushing furiously. Then pay closer attention next time. The goal is not to create a perfect image on your first day of lessons. The goal is to learn where your surfaces are. Prepare yourself. Harry tried to pretend to be Kimball Kinnison again, tried to pay more attention, but his thoughts were a little scattered and he was suddenly aware of all the things he shouldn't be thinking about. Oh, this was going to suck. Harry gritted his teeth. At least the instructor would be obliviated afterward. Legitimins. There was a pause. 
In a white room, windowless, featureless, sitting before a desk, facing an expressionless man in formal robes of solid black. It was their fourth day on a Sunday evening. When you paid this much, you got your sessions any darn time you wanted, never mind the concept of weekends. Hello, Mr. Potter, the telepath said tonelessly, having cast the full suite of privacy spells. Hello, Mr. Bester, Harry said wearily. Let's just get the initial shock out of the way, shall we? You managed to surprise me, the man said, now sounding slightly interested. Well then. He pointed his wand and stared into Harry's eyes. Legitimans. There was a pause, and then the black-robed man jerked as if someone had touched him with a cattle prod. The Dark Lord is alive? His eyes were suddenly wild. Dumbledore turns himself invisible and sneaks into girls' dorm rooms. Harry sighed and looked down at his watch. In about another three seconds... So? He hadn't quite recovered his tonelessness. You genuinely believe you're going to discover the secret rules of magic and become all-powerful. That's right, Harry said evenly, still looking at his watch. I'm that overconfident. I wonder. It seems the Sorting Hat thinks he'll be the next Dark Lord. And you know I'm trying pretty hard not to be, and you saw that we already had a long discussion about whether you were willing to teach me occlumency, and in the end you decided to do it. So can we just get this over with? All right, said the man exactly six seconds later, same as last time. Prepare yourself. He paused and then said, his voice rather wistful, Though I do wish I could remember that trick with the gold and silver. Harry was finding himself very disturbed by how reproducible human thoughts were when you reset people back to the same initial conditions and exposed them to the same stimuli. It was dispelling illusions that a good reductionist wasn't supposed to have in the first place. Harry was in a rather bad mood as he stomped out of his herbology class the next Monday morning. Hermione was seething alongside him. The other children were still inside, a bit slow to assemble their things because they were gibbering excitedly to each other about Ravenclaw winning the year's second Quidditch match. It seemed that last night after dinner, a girl had flown around on a broomstick for 30 minutes and then caught some sort of giant mosquito. There were other facts about what had happened during this match, but they were irrelevant. Harry had missed this exciting sports event due to his occlumency lessons and also having a life. He had then avoided all conversations in the Ravenclaw dorm, weren't quieting charms and magic trunks wonderful. He had eaten breakfast at the Gryffindor table. But Harry couldn't avoid herbology, and the Ravenclaws had talked about it before class, and after class, and during class, until Harry had looked up from the baby furcot whose diaper he was changing, and announced loudly that some of them were trying to learn about plants, and snitches didn't grow on anything, so could they all please shut up about Quidditch? Everyone else present had given him shocked looks, except Hermione, who looked like she wanted to applaud, and Professor Sprout, who had awarded him a point for Ravenclaw. A point for Ravenclaw. One point. The seven idiots on their idiot brooms playing their idiot game had earned 190 points for Ravenclaw. It seemed that Quidditch scores added directly onto the house points total. In other words... Catching a golden mosquito was worth 150 house points. Harry couldn't even imagine what he would have to do to earn 150 house points. Besides, you know, rescuing 150 Hufflepuffs 
or coming up with 15 ideas as good as putting protective shelves on time machines, or inventing 1,500 creative ways to kill people, or being Hermione Granger for the entire year. We should kill them, Harry said to Hermione, who was walking beside him with an equally offended air. Who, the Quidditch team? I was thinking of everyone involved in any way with Quidditch anywhere, but the Ravenclaw team would be a start, yes. Hermione's lips were pursed disapprovingly. You do know that killing people is wrong, Harry? Yes. Okay, just checking. Let's get the secret first. I've read some Agatha Christie mysteries. Do you know how we can get her onto a train? Two students plotting murder, said a dry voice. How shocking. From around a nearby corner strolled a man in lightly spotted robes, his greasy hair falling long and unkempt about his shoulders. Deadly danger seemed to radiate out from him, filling the hallway with improperly mixed potions and accidental falls and people dying in bed of what the Aurors would rule to be natural causes. Without thinking about it at all, Harry stepped in front of Hermione. There was an intake of breath from behind him, and then a moment later, Hermione brushed past and stepped in front of him. Run, Harry! She said. Boys shouldn't have to be in danger. Severus Snape smiled mirthlessly. Amusing. I request a moment of your time, Potter, if you can tear yourself away from your flirtations with Miss Granger. Suddenly, there was a very worried look on Hermione's face. She turned to Harry and opened her mouth, then paused, looking distressed. Oh, don't worry, Miss Granger. I promise to return your bow unmaimed. His smile vanished. Now Potter and I are about to go off and have a private conversation, just by ourselves. I hope it is clear that you are not invited, but just in case, consider that an order from a Hogwarts professor. I'm sure a good little girl like you won't disobey. And Severus turned and walked back around the corner. Coming, Potter? Um, Harry said to Hermione, can I just sort of go off and follow him and let you work out what I should say to make sure you're not all worried and offended? No, Hermione said, her voice trembling. Severus's laughter echoed from around the corner. Harry bowed his head. Sorry, he said lowly. Really? And he went off after the potions master. So, Harry said, there were no other sounds now but the two pairs of legs, the long and the short, padding across a random stone corridor. The potions master was striding quickly, but not too fast for Harry to keep up and insofar as Harry could apply the concept of directionality to Hogwarts, they were moving away from the frequented areas. What's this about? I don't suppose you could explain why the two of you were plotting to murder Cho Chang. I don't suppose you could explain, in your capacity as an official of the Hogwarts school system, why catching a golden mosquito is deemed an academic accomplishment worthy of a 150 house points? A smile crossed Severus's lips. Dear me, and I thought you were supposed to be perceptive. Are you truly so incapable of understanding your classmates, Potter, or do you dislike them too much to try? If Quidditch scores did not count towards the House Cup, then none of them would care about house points at all. It would merely be an obscure contest for students like you and Miss Granger. It was a shockingly good answer, and that shock brought Harry's mind fully awake. In retrospect, it shouldn't have been surprising that Severus understood his students, understood them very well indeed. He had been reading their minds. And, 
The book said that a successful Agilimens was extremely rare, rarer than a perfect Occlumens, because almost no one had enough mental discipline. Mental discipline? Harry had collected stories about a man who routinely lost his temper in class and blew up at young children. But the same man, when Harry had spoken of the Dark Lord still being alive, had responded instantly and perfectly, reacting in precisely the way that someone completely ignorant would react. The man stalked about Hogwarts with the air of an assassin, radiating danger, which was exactly not what a real assassin should do. Real assassins should look like meek little accountants until they killed you. He was the head of house for a proud and aristocratic Slytherin, and he wore a robe which was spotted with stains from bits of potions and ingredients, which two minutes of magic could have removed. Harry noticed that he was confused, and his threat estimate of the head of house Slytherin shot up astronomically. Dumbledore had seemed to think Severus was his, and there'd been nothing to contradict that. The potions master had been scary but not abusive, as promised. So, Harry had reasoned earlier, this was fellowship business. If Severus had been planning harm, surely he wouldn't have come to get Harry in front of Hermione, a witness, when he could have simply waited for some time when Harry was alone. Harry quietly bit his lip. I once knew a boy who truly adored Quidditch. He was an utter pillock, just as you and I would expect, we too. What is this? Harry said slowly. Patience, Potter. Severus turned his head and then glided with an assassin's bearing into a nearby opening in the corridor walls, a smaller and narrower hallway leading off. Harry followed him, wondering if it would be smarter to simply run away. They turned and made another turn and came to a dead end, a simple blank wall. If Hogwarts had actually been built, rather than conjured or summoned or birthed or whatever, Harry would have had some sharp words for the architect about paying people to build hallways that didn't go anywhere. Quietus, said Severus, and a few other things as well. Harry leaned back, folded his arms across his chest, and watched Severus's face. Looking me in the eyes, Potter, your occlumency lessons cannot have progressed far enough for you to block legilimency. But then perhaps they have progressed far enough for you to detect it. Since I cannot know otherwise, I will not risk trying. The man smiled thinly. And the same will hold for Dumbledore, I think. Which is why we are now having this little talk. Harry's eyes widened involuntarily. To begin with, I should like you to promise not to speak of our conversations to anyone. So far as the school is concerned, we are discussing your potions homework. Whether or not they believe that is unimportant. So far as Dumbledore and McGonagall are concerned, I am violating Draco Malfoy's confidences in me, and neither of us think it is proper to speak further of the particulars. Harry's brain tried to calculate the ramifications and implications of this and ran out of swap space. Well? All right. It was hard to see how having a conversation and being unable to tell anyone could be more constraining than not having it, in which case you also couldn't tell anyone the contents. I promise. Severus was watching Harry intently. You said once in the headmaster's office that you would not tolerate bullying or abuse, and so I wonder, Harry Potter, just how much do you resemble your father? Unless we're talking about Michael Varys Evans, the answer is that I know very little about James Potter. Severus nodded as though to himself. There is a fifth-year Slytherin, a boy named Lasath Lestrange. 
He's being bullied by Gryffindors. I am constrained in my ability to deal with such situations. You could help him, perhaps, if you wished. I am not asking you for a favor and will not owe you one. It is simply an opportunity to do as you will. Harry stared at Severus, thinking. Wondering if it's a trap? said Severus, a faint smile crossing his lips. It is not. It is a test. Call it curiosity on my part. But Lasath's troubles are real, as are my own difficulties in intervening. That was the trouble with other people knowing you were a good guy. Even if you knew they knew, you still couldn't ignore the bait. And if his father had protected students from bullies too, it didn't matter if Harry knew why Severus had told him, it still made him feel warm inside and proud, and made it impossible to walk away. Fine. Tell me about Lasath. Why is he being bullied? Severus's face lost the faint smile. You think there are reasons, Potter? Perhaps not, but the thought had occurred to me that he might have pushed some unimportant mudblood girl down the stairs. Lasath the Strange is the son of Bellatrix Black, the most fanatic and evil servant of the Dark Lord. Lasath is the acknowledged bastard of Rabastan Lestrange. Shortly after the Dark Lord's death, Bellatrix and Rabastan and Rabastan's brother Rodolphus were captured while torturing Alice and Frank Longbottom. All three are in Azkaban for life. The Longbottoms were driven insane by repeated cruciatus and remain in St. Mungo's incurable ward. Is any of that a good reason to bully him, Potter? It is no reason at all. And Lasath himself has done no wrong that you know? The faint smile crossed Severus's lips again. He is no more a saint than anyone else. But he's pushed no mudblood girls down the stairs, not that I have heard. Or saw in his mind. Severus's expression was chill. I did not invade his privacy, Potter. I looked within the Gryffindors, rather. He is simply a convenient target for their little satisfactions. A cold wash of anger ran down Harry's spine, and then he had to remind himself that Severus might not be a trustworthy source of information. And you think that an intervention by Harry Potter, the boy who lived, might prove effective? Indeed, said Severus Snape, and told Harry when and where the Gryffindors were planning their next little game. End first half of chapter 27 Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Severus Snape by Brian Jones. Fred and George Weasley by Greg Krause. Mr. Bester by Benjamin King. Quibbler Headlines by Phil Fulu. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit LessWrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion of Chapter 27, Empathy. Empathy.